So it's always kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. When I went to CBS, I think people said I didn't have gravitas, which I always say is Latin for testicles. I've done more hard-hitting interviews than most of the, the evening news anchors combined. So just because I have a personality and I can be funny at times or I can be lighthearted, does that mean I'm lacking intellectual depth? I think that people really still compartmentalize women and they have a difficult time seeing them holistically as people who can be kind of, you know, they're, they not, not only are good at multitasking, but they're multifaceted. Welcome to The Women, a production of iHeartRadio and myself, Rose Reed. As the coronavirus outbreak continues to spread, over 30 states have instituted shelter-in-place orders, and many cities have closed schools through the end of the year. This constant change in news and information is being covered by journalists worldwide. Women are on the front lines trying to get the most up-to-date information, asking tough questions to keep institutions responsible and governments responsive. One person who's been doing just that and who's no stranger to reporting in a crisis is the one and only Katie Couric. My name is Katie Couric. I'm in East Hampton, New York, currently holed up. And my work is important to me because I consider journalism and translating what's going on in the world and asking questions, speaking truth to power as a calling and a public service. I wanted to get Katie's perspective on how the outbreak of the coronavirus and the response to COVID-19 compares to other events that she's covered and get a better understanding of how she's navigated her career, her personal life through her own moments of crisis and challenge. I was especially excited to get the opportunity to speak with Katie Couric as my mom, Gail, is such a big fan of hers and we've watched her career blossom on the national stage. Katie, you led the Today Show to dominant ratings during your 15 years as a co-host at NBC, and you became the first woman to be a solo network TV evening news anchor during a five-year stint at CBS. Can't believe I'm saying those words, uh, first woman after Y2K, but there you have it. I must say it's such a privilege to speak with you and have this opportunity to ask you some questions about your life and your work. Thank you. You're like my my affirmation. This is your morning boost, you know. <laughs> <laughs> You've covered some of the biggest news stories and reported them in real time. You were in Charlottesville during the riots. You were actually reporting live on the Today Show when the planes hit the towers on 9-11. How does your experience covering some of the biggest events in the last four decades compare to what we're experiencing now with the coronavirus and the pandemic. Well, you're right. I've covered a lot of very intense, frightening stories. Um, but I think what makes this different is these were explosive events that kind of had a beginning, middle, and end. I think what's different about this event is the lack of understanding, the 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 fact that we're learning about this virus in real time, that the scientists don't clearly understand, and they're learning about it day by day. We don't know how long this will take, and we don't know if things will ever return to quote unquote normal. I guess you could compare 
bioterrorism or or a pandemic to uh, the scourge of white supremacy and the the kind of networks of of racism, anti-Semitism that are thriving in this in this current age. So they all have these kind of ominous, I think, languishing qualities. But this, I think, has has disrupted everything. It's disrupted the way we're living, the way we're socializing, the way it's disrupted the entire healthcare system. It's disrupted the economy. I think the tentacles of this story are so far reaching. And the fact that there's so much uncertainty and a lack of predictability about this story, I think that primarily is what sets it apart from other big things that I've covered. You've interviewed some of the most prominent heads of state and pop culture icons, George H. Bush, Barbara Bush, Barack Obama, Michelle Obama, John Kerry, John McCain, Catherine Hepburn, um, Yasser Arafat, so many presidents from Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Shakira, John F. Kennedy's last interview. (laughs) George W. Bush, Shakira. (laughs) (laughs) You like my jumps? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I can imagine that the live setting can make you nervous, but I'm curious, how have you used live recordings to your advantage? Well, there there are pros and cons to live interviews. First of all, nothing gets your adrenaline pumping, like doing a live interview in front of millions (laughs) of people. And of course, every interview is different. You can have a live interview with uh, a victim of, of, uh, you know, somebody who was uh, buried under the rubble in the Oklahoma City bombing, someone who lost a child. You can have a live interview with a politician and hold their feet to the fire. Uh, You know, I think every situation is quite different. And I learned early on that you really have to adjust your tone to go with uh, the interview you're doing. When I went to CBS, someone told me, you know, the interviewer is just as important as the interviewee. Back in the day when you had figures like Mike Wallace and and, uh, you know, Morley Safer and Ed Bradley, uh, those people, I think, they were the stand-in for the public. And the public, I think, related to those people trying to get the truth. I remember interviewing David Duke in a live interview and just really letting him have it. (laughs) Um, You know, in that interview, I, I, I was really tough. I think people watching, you know, saw this you know, perky brunette who was sort of funny and, you know, spirited. And I remember I just felt my eyes narrowed. And I, you know, I really went at him using a, taking a page from Tim Russert's notebook and reading back some of the things he had said in the past and asking him to explain himself. And I mean, I was really, really tough on David Duke. And my dad called me afterwards. My dad was a print journalist for many years. And he said, you know, I'm so proud of you. That was that was really Edward R. Murrow quality journalism. And Oh, dad, thank you. Yeah, it was so nice. He also used to call me and say, it's not Canadian geese, it's Canada geese. Please don't say that again. <laughs> um, so my dad is really, really smart. And, uh, and so... I, that I was think a real that, compliment. I think in a live interview, uh, there was an. I think it brings a greater sense of urgency, and 
you know, you have a certain amount of time. With the Columbine story, it was so moving and so evocative and emotional and so raw with these two individuals. One had lost his son, another had lost his sister. The very next day, talking to me, pitch black, snow falling in the background, unusually in April in Littleton, Colorado. Jeff Zucker, who was the executive producer of the Today Show at the time, just let let the interview go and mm-hmm. blew off the commercial breaks and you know knew that something profound was unfolding in front of me and in front of millions of people and there's something profound happening between these two souls who were completely devastated and had lost something someone so so dear to them in such a violent senseless unexpected shocking way so you know i think a live interview is, you, I think you feel even more so that you're in the moment with the person asking the questions and the person, I don't know, it's almost a communal experience. For you personally, what does it feel like when you're asking that next question, that follow-up? Are your toes cringing underneath the table? Or are you thinking about a executive producer you've planned with and you're like, oh, I'm not going home without this question. What does that feel like inside? I think it depends. You know, like if I'm in the White House doing a live interview with the president of the United States, yes, I'm a ball of nerves. Uh, As long as you remain calm and you're listening and you're respectful, but firm and so I, I, even when I'm writing questions, I, I imagine what the answer is going to be. And then I try to anticipate that and write my questions accordingly. Uh, so if somebody's going to try to get out of a, an answer, I'll either keep asking the question in a different way. Like I asked Laura Bush about her opinion on, a, on Roe v. Wade. And she was very circumlocutious, and I kept asking in a different way, do you think it should be overturned, you know, blah, blah, blah. And uh, she finally said she did not believe Roe v. Wade should be overturned. And I got in a lot of trouble from the Bush White House for, for pursuing that line of questions because I think it was the day before the inauguration. They thought I was badgering her. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, should I have done that? Maybe not, but I thought it was an important question for women to understand. I know that Barbara Bush had sort of said off the record or kind of as an aside that she was pro-choice, and I kind of wanted to see where Laura Bush stood on it. And um, But I, I know that the president, George W. Bush, was quite annoyed with me, and kind of the, the Bush White House, I think, didn't like my questions during the Iraq war. So I kind of got blackballed. And every time there was an opportunity to interview somebody at the White House, particularly the president, Matt Lauer always uh, was given that assignment. And I kind of felt like my, my bosses at NBC should have said, you know, that's not how it works. But I think it would have been difficult because they would have said, okay, well, we're going to go to a different network then. I think you're always balancing being hard hitting and challenging with access, you know, yeah, uh, balance. If, right. So if, if, if people get mad or think you're unfair or think you're too tough, they're going to basically just say, 
no. We're, and they've got so many options, especially now. Right. You know, back when I was doing the Today Show, there weren't that many outlets. And now they can go straight to the public, as we've seen with Donald Trump. They don't necessarily right. need a, you know, a journalist to communicate what they want to communicate to people. So it's all it's a whole new ball game out there, Rose. I want to ask you about how you've navigated criticism and uh, and we don't have to go into this too much, but maybe just one thought on how you've handled sexism. Uh I want to read you a quote that Fast Company wrote after your um, interview with Sarah Palin. Katie Couric, whom I've been critical of, turned the tide of the election with her super insightful interview of Sarah Palin. Couric's gentle but firm questioning of the governor of Alaska caught her completely off guard and revealed, as no one had before, her lack of knowledge of the issues. Though Couric is still not winning the evening news competition, she showed herself to be a much better and more aggressive reporter than the boys on those other networks. And in parentheses, like the new do, Katie. What an asshole. (laughs) I know. And this is written by a woman, no less. Well, I remember Nora Ephron, uh, may she rest in peace, writing a horrible thing about my makeup. Um, after Mm. the midterms and saying she couldn't concentrate because my makeup was so terrible. First of all, I don't really think it was. Maybe it was her her TV screen. Maybe the color was (laughs) off. But it was just such a, like, really? Uh, You know, I think that a lot of the really nasty pieces that have been written written about me through the years, a lot of them have been written by women. Uh, Alessandra Stanley was a kind of wrote repeatedly really I mean she wrote a real doozy when I was at NBC about you know how demanding and difficult I was I was I did I was demanding um, you know but I think demanding in a from a woman and demanding from a man uh, you know people just it's much more palatable The the man is considered demanding the woman's considered a bitch And I think we have so much uh, unconscious bias, so much cultural conditioning that sets our expectations for the way men and women should behave, that it makes it very, very tricky for a woman who has some authority and some power to wield that power because she has to constantly navigate being liked and being warm and friendly and kind to her colleagues. And yet... Uh, there's so much forgiveness when a guy, you know, takes you to task for a a subpar job. You know, I'm writing about this right now for my book. I'm writing about Hillary Clinton and, you know, how difficult still it is for women to please everyone. I was just writing about when she got misty-eyed during the New Hampshire primary Mm -hmm. in 2008 And suddenly she got a lot of support from women because she showed her human side. But if she finally cried. Yes. And if she were too emotional, of course, you know what people would have said. Oh, God, we can't put her in charge of big decisions. Women are too emotional. So it's always kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. When I went to CBS, I think people said I didn't have gravitas, which I always say is Latin for testicles. And I said, (laughs) well, wait a second. You know, I've done more hard-hitting interviews uh, for example, the David Duke one, et cetera, then most of the the evening news anchors combined. So just because I have a personality and I can be funny at times or I can be lighthearted 
Does that mean I'm lacking intellectual depth? I think that people really still compartmentalize women and they have a difficult time seeing them holistically as people who can be kind of you know, they're, they not, not only are good at multitasking, but they're multifaceted. And so um, that doesn't really answer your question. Sorry, I just wanted no, on a this little is all mini, I want. Ti- all I want mi- is mini to hear your ti- tirade, Rose. But um, <laughs> I think I, you know, listen, it was very painful. I was just looking at Hillary saying um, when a guy in New Hampshire that I can't remember that, I think he was a local journalist. What do you say about people who are impressed by your resume? But uh you know, they just, they like Barack Obama better than you. And she said, in this very sweet moment, she said, well, that really hurts my feelings. And <laughs> that's when Barack Obama famously said, you're likable enough, Hillary, which was kind of Aww. pricky of him, honestly. Yeah. And, uh, and and I think it just shows this this existential struggle women still are having about for us, this need to be likable, to ingratiate ourselves. And yet, you know, sometimes we have to be firm. We have to say, no, we don't like that. And people have a hard time hearing that from a woman still. And they'll, they're much more accepting hearing that from a man. And I think it's because, hate to say it, it's the patriarchy. You know, it's how we've been established it, how we've been raised to believe that men are the authority figures and women are, you know, men are the hunters and we're the gatherers. I think it's almost as primal as that. And I think the way to change that paradigm is to see more women in these important decision-making roles. And that's really why I I perhaps foolishly took that job at CBS. I wanted someone to say- You said foolishly? I don't know. Maybe. I I don't know. It was very, very, it was a very tough five years for me. We have to see these strong, powerful women. So it it becomes less of a novelty. And um, I, I think when I took that job, I had no idea naively how much sexism still existed in the world. I kind of thought, well, I was kind of the big cheese at the Today Show. I had seniority over Matt Lauer. I'd been there longer. I um, kind of, I mean, we had a very, we were very much equals, but, you know, people accepted me as an authority figure on that show. Uh, So I thought that could translate into an evening news broadcast, but it's a more traditional audience. It's an older audience. CBS is a very traditional, kind of was a very old boys network. And so I think Uh, I think I was quite naive, and that's what I mean about sort of foolishly trying to to do that. I thought it would be a great opportunity to to change things up and to kind of push the ball forward, but it was kind of, I felt like Sisyphus uh, many days I walked into that place. Katie shares what she's learned from grief and explains when she decides to play hardball in her interviews. That's after the break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. 
Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. You know, as your own boss, how do you decide when you're going to play hardball? I saw you with Sheryl Sandberg, and I have to say that I feel like you really put Facebook's feet to the fire. And I also saw you talking with Megyn Kelly, and, you know, you didn't really push her. So when do you decide, okay, I'm going to go hard, or or this is going to be fun? I think you have to kind of know your audience, you know. Uh, there's so many things. There's so many things that enter in how you approach an interview, I think. I think you're talking about the Women in the World uh, interview I did with Megan. Um, you know, like, I probably would have challenged challenged her a little bit more about Fox News and kind of uh, the approach Fox News takes and some of the some of the comments she's made in the past. It was an all-female audience. I think Megan, I think it was after mm. she asked Donald mm-hmm. Trump that question. I think you kind of just have to have a sense of your audience, the occasion, the person, the, uh, you know, the vibe of the room. And and that's, I think with, with Cheryl, I've known her for a long time. I told her, you know, this is going to be, a, I have to ask some really tough questions. And you know, she's a big girl. She knows how to handle those. But, um, you know, I think Facebook deserved to be asked some, Facebook writ large and Cheryl individually deserved to be asked some really tough questions about how they're contributing to uh, or or potentially damage, damaging our democracy and this idea that they're a platform and not a media company, you know. So I really really studied everything. I I think I was very well prepared about the issues. And, you know, I really, I really challenged her. And I think because I know she's a really good, decent, fine person. um, And I found there was this disconnect between what Facebook was doing. Now, I think it's, this is a case of the technology getting ahead of the morality, right? And so it's, it's complicated, but I felt and I also feel like, honestly, most smart people do better when they're asked challenging questions. Hillary Clinton always would rise to the occasion. If she was asked some kind of amorphous, semi-softball question, she, she'd she be sort of, a, I mean, she was always, always, always so eloquent. But I think she was at her best when she had her back up just a teeny bit and had to defend her yeah. position. You've also said that during your time with your co-anchor for a very long time, Matt Lauer, that you, like many people after the shock and pain of hearing these kinds of allegations, didn't see that behavior in your coworker. Does that reflect the glass ceiling that you may have experienced in the leadership level at an institution like NBC? I think it might, but I also think it reflects a, a dramatic change in culture. They're starting to become more women at sort of the executive producer level. I think all three morning shows are, have female executive producers now, which is really great since the, the majority of the audience is female. Why it was kind of this male-dominated leadership structure for so long is insane and ridiculous and insulting. So I'm really glad that's happening. But when you talk about sort of the leadership, the administrators, um, for the most part, you know, the tippy top people who really can, 
establish uh, a culture who can really kind of be a symbol of, I think, the moral center of an organization are still men. And so there are very few women who have the authority to say, no, this is not how we're going to do it. They And part of their longevity is how much, I call it obsequious, uh, obsequious subservience. Um, you know, it's, it's all about propping the men up instead of having equal footing with them, if that makes sense. And with Katie Couric Media, are there things that you're doing based on your experience and seeing the limitation that comes from lack of representation and leadership that you're taking on when you're thinking about uh, creating your organization? Yeah, definitely. I mean, honestly, I would like to have more diversity in our company. Uh, I'm trying to give opportunities, particularly to women and you know, the other day, Julia uh, Lewis, who does my helps you know, my social media producer, who's great. Um, I had her call call somebody who lost her husband to Corona and who desperately wanted an autopsy and I'm couldn't sorry. get one. He was thirty nine mm-hmm. years old. It was oh just so God. heartbreaking. Jesus. And I asked Julia to do it, and. You know, when I when I asked her to do it, I thought about my work as a local news reporter a long time ago. One of my first stories was in Washington, D.C., these two girls. Actually, it was in Maryland, but I was in D.C. as a reporter at WRC. And I had to knock on the door of this mom, and her daughter had been killed by a dump truck in it, like with full of hot asphalt. Her daughter and her best oh friend God. were driving behind it. And... Uh, I had to knock on her door and talk to her and get a photo of her daughter. And, you know, I remember that experience so well. And the, the mom was so lovely and gracious and took me downstairs and went through a photo album with me and started talking to me about her daughter. And, and in a way, when I asked Julia, will you, will you call her? I mean, I could have called her. But I thought I wanted Julia to have that experience, you know, that life-changing experience of sharing grief with someone you don't even know and, and, and almost um, helping them acknowledge the loss and, and sort of validate the life lost. I've always wondered why grieving people want to talk and share their stories. It's really because... They want to make sure that that life, that person they loved, mattered. And, you know, I was just thinking about that I was so happy to, it's a tragedy, of course, but to help Julia have that experience and to have empathy like that with a complete stranger, she'll never forget that conversation you've been on both sides of sharing grief. You've interviewed um, countless people in so many different formats about their experience. You've been so open about your own uh, with your husband, Jay, who passed uh, and his battle with uh, colon cancer. You know, you've talked openly about not getting a chance or not maybe, I don't want to, put words in your mouth, but 
having a very complicated goodbye. And I'm wondering if, um, you know, you lost your sister, Emily, in 2001 to pancreatic cancer and your father in 2011 to Parkinson's. You know, what did you do differently during those final months because of your experience that you had with grief with Jay? That's a very good and heavy question. Uh, I think that I didn't do that much differently with my sister. You know, there's a very fine line between hope and acceptance. And um, Emily and Jay, they just kept fighting till the end. You know, they did not they did not go gently into this good night, as Dylan Thomas would say. It, they raged on, and um, they uh, just—they were fighters. They were young. Jay was forty-one years old with two little girls and a wife he liked most of the time. And uh, <laughs> Emily was fifty-four and was running for lieutenant governor of Virginia, and everyone thought she'd be the first female governor. You know, they never really accepted that they were going to die. And I think until the very end, well, Jay, I don't think ever, because he just collapsed on the floor of the powder room. But Emily, because, you know, she just got sicker and sicker. Uh, So I don't know how much I've learned. You know, I also, even my parents, my dad was 90, my mom was 91, I had a hard time accepting them dying because we were very, very close. And, uh, you know, I think I just tried to be there for them. It's just, it's really, really painful. Death is really hard for no matter how old the person is. You know, even if your parents are older, it's always too soon. They're your parents and you're going to miss them no matter what. Mm -hmm. But my mom was kind of a matter of fact Midwesterner. You know, I would say, mom, I wish people didn't have to die. And she'd say, well, if they didn't, it'd get pretty crowded down here. (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) um, you know, I was with, with my parents when they were dying. It was very hard for me to accept. So I don't know what I've learned. I've learned, I guess, to just love people as much as you can, as long as you can, and and uh, as hard as you can. So, and I remember my minister, I'm not super religious, but I go to church sometimes. I like sort of the community of it. Uh, he said, those who love deeply, grieve deeply. And I think mm. that whenever mm. I'm really, really sad about the people I've lost in my life, I think how lucky I was to have loved so deeply. This mm-hmm. is getting very heavy, Rose. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, it's okay. It's okay. Um, I appreciate you sharing that. I um, I also, I, I lost my best friend suddenly. She was in a car accident and I was never able to say goodbye. And I, I grieve for all the time. And I think that um, something you said really comforted me in an interview. You had basically said that you felt like you were part of this club of understanding other people. I feel that those, like you said, those who love deeply grieve deeply, but those of us who grieve, we are so connected to this beautiful matrix, this incredible seesaw of life. I feel like after that, I took every opportunity that I could to travel and no matter how much 
you know, no matter how much money it really is. I mean, I, I will really live life on the edge in a way just to really soak in those moments of joy. Yeah. Um, well, that's, that's a great lesson to learn from grief, right? To, to appreciate your friends and to tell them when you can how much, how much you love them and how much they mean to me. Coming up, Katie sings us a song and gives me dating advice. That's after the break. So we've reached our lightning round. This is called Truth or Truth. Oh, we God. go light after we go deep. Dun, dun, dun. Pew, pew, pew. <laughs> is there a theme song that picks you up? Yeah. Cheer up, Sleepy Jean by the Monkees. <laughs> Ask Gail. Gail will know it. Oh, that played in our car, let me tell oh, you. Oh, I love it. My daughters <laughs> love it, and we love it. Oh, what can it mean to, to uh, Oh, I guess it's called Jay Dream Believer. Believer. And uh, Homecoming Queen. Homecoming Queen. I like your title better. <laughs> you have... You had two girls and your husband had two kids when he got, when y'all got married. Right. What's one thing that you love the most about being in a blended family? Um, I just think it's nice because I like to, I mean, first of all, John has two fantastic kids. Um, I wish I had had more kids. So now I do. And, um, you know, I think what I, one of the things I love is I like to see him parenting. It shows me a different dimension of who he is. And I can learn from some of the things he does about his parenting style. I think he can learn from me. You know, and I, I like commotion and chaos and activity. So I'm always a more the merrier person. So they've enriched my life and the lives of my girls. So I think all in all, it's just a positive, a positive thing. Did you ever get that JM tattoo on your bum? I've heard you say in another interview that because your first husband, Jay, and your current husband, John, have the same initials, JM, that the only tattoo you would ever get would be a JM <laughs> on your bum. Wow, you really did your homework, Rose. Uh, <laughs> no, I didn't. I'm, I'm actually very, very anti-tattoo. Sorry, tattoo lovers everywhere. That's no, okay. I, I just don't like that. Do you have a tattoo, Rose? No, I don't. Even though I'm, you can't see because I'm wearing my collared shirt, but no, I don't have any. I don't have any, anything. I don't even know if I want to commit to putting something on my wall. You know? <laughs> I'm very anti-pain, personally. True or false, someone set you up on a date with Cory Booker. True. My question is, how do you get busy friends to set you up? Because this, this is something I want to champion for myself. I don't know if it's just like the times or that my friends are lazy or what. Okay, okay. I, I'm very good about this. You've got okay. to be intentional. You have to tell okay. everyone repeatedly because okay. people are self-centered, let's be honest. And you have to <laughs> say to them... I'm really interested in meeting some people. I don't have to fall in love, but I just really want to expand my circle of friends. You know, one time after Jay died and I wanted to to meet people, I invited all my girlfriends to a cocktail party and they each had to bring two guys. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, so you should do that. <laughs> Boom. 
Katie Couric, thank you for joining the women. It's such an honor and well, a privilege. It's so fun to talk to you, Rose. And I only heard your Southern accent come out once when you said y'all. <laughs> I was like, there it is. But it was really fun talking to you. Thank you, by the way. I really appreciate that you put so much work in preparing for this interview. So thank you, Rose. That means so much. You can follow Katie's reporting on the coronavirus on her podcast, Next Question with Katie Couric, which is also on iHeartRadio. And you can follow her on Twitter at Katie Couric. President Trump has signed the $2 trillion bipartisan relief bill that includes stimulus payments to individuals and even changes for student loan payments. You may be able to file for unemployment or for one of the new loans for small business owners or sole proprietors. For more information, visit irs.gov. The Women is a production of iHeartRadio and myself, Rose Reed. Holly Fry is our executive producer. This episode was mixed by Adrian Lilly. Special thanks to Nora Kipnis, Adriana Fizio, Lauren Hansen, Gail Reed, and Katie Couric. We want to hear from you, your questions, requests, or even send us a voice memo about your own experience with COVID-19. You can email us at thewomenpod at gmail.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. We'll be back next week with more from women on the front lines fighting the coronavirus and COVID-19. Take care and be safe. like a country song i'm so weird by the way rose i wrote a country <laughs> no, song after, this is all on brand to me after Dep, country pop this is the I katie wrote kirk a, brand i wrote a song i'm so random uh after jay died called if i only knew and all the all the opportunities all the missed opportunities all the stupid like if he put his hand out and i'd kind of blow him off or uh, that i didn't tell him how how great he was or that I that I got miffed at stupid stuff and uh, all the things I would have done differently if I had known our time together was finite sadly no one wanted to record it (laughs) (laughs) what we gotta change this Katie (laughs) don't you think that would be a beautiful song if I only knew I don't know it just it, 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 it it screams Grammy all over it don't you think Rose Grammy or, you know, I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say Oscar, you know, song of the of the year for a feature Well, then film, we have to write a know? movie, Rose. That's a that's a tall order, but who Katie knows. Katie Kirk Media, nothing's yeah. nothing's stopping you.